Welcome to the show, everyone. This is the Innovative Schools podcast, and I am your host, Robbie Lamb. This week's episode is actually a recording of a live stream broadcast that we did with author and motivational speaker, Robert Jackson. Robert is the author of several books, his most recent of which is titled Becoming the Educator They Need, Strategies, Mindsets, and Beliefs for Supporting Black Male and Latino Students. Robert will be a keynote and pre-conference session speaker at our upcoming Innovative Schools Summit, August 5th through the 8th. The summit will feature seven keynote sessions, 11 pre-conference sessions, and 24 breakout sessions. If you'd like some more information on how to attend the virtual summit, please visit InnovativeSchoolsSummit.com. We're thrilled to have Mr. Jackson here today. Uh, Robert is a motivational speaker, the author of several books, and most recently he won an award for his uh, new book uh, titled Becoming the Educator They Need. And uh, that just won uh, the Gold Excel Award, which is, if you're not familiar with the uh, Excel Awards, those are pretty big deals in the, uh, it's a pretty big deal in the literary world. And uh, Robert, congratulations on that. Thank you. And uh, you're welcome. So the subtitle of your book is Strategies, Mindsets, and Beliefs uh, for Supporting Black, Male, and Latino Students. And um, with everything going on in the world today, obviously, uh, with uh, George Floyd and uh, the Black Lives Matters protest. There is um, just a, a big increase in conversations about racial equity and awareness, um, biases, um, all of those types of things. And I thought, what a great time to speak to you because um, I know those are topics that you write heavily about in, in this book and you travel the country speaking about as well. So before we get too far into speaking uh, about that book, I was wondering uh, if you could share with us what led you to write this book? Well, you know, ASCD had been talking to me for a few years about possibly, you know, writing a book for them. And I like to write my books my way, Robbie, you know, because I feel like I want my audience to actually feel like they're there in the moment. And the way that they wanted me to write the book at first, I didn't, wasn't totally in agreement with it. So I was great to just pull out of the project. But then I said, well, you know what? I'm going to publish the book anyway, so I'm going to write it my way. If they like it, cool. If they don't like it, no big deal, right? So I went on and, and wrote it the way I wanted to write it, and they loved it. <laughs> and they said, listen, listen, we never had a book like this, and we want to put this book out. And that's how I wrote the book for them. I was going to write it regardless. I feel like there's a book that's needed for educators that's talking about, you know, the culture awareness piece and, and culture diversity and racial microaggressions and invisibilization and all the things that our kids experience on a daily basis. How do we build strong relationships with our black and Hispanic population? Because these are the kids who are being suspended from school the most. So how do we build these positive relationships? So I was gonna, I was gonna write it anyway, but it just so happened that ASCD, um, you know, which is you know, one of the biggest educational uh, conglomerates in the world decided they wanted to take a crack at it. So here we are. So I'm excited about the project. And, you know, like you said, just receiving an award. I was really shocked. I didn't even know what the Excel award was, right? <laughs> I said, what is this? I was just trying to write a book to help educators and administrators be aware of the biases that we have toward our young people, especially our black and Hispanic male population. You know, and I, I did read the book uh, last week and um, reviewed it some more over the weekend. And, you know, there's, there's a lot in there. I highly recommend everybody uh, picks up a copy of it. But for me, like, the main theme throughout the book was 
the power, how influential our perspective is of other people. Um, you know, how we perceive other people, uh, students in our class, their backgrounds, um, their fashion, their word choices, all of that. Our perceptions of those things, they inform our words. They do. And then our words, they play a major role in how our students view themselves, um, what they expect of themselves, um, what they think is possible, what they think is not possible in their lives. And you tell some great stories in the book that, honestly, for me, they're just very revealing. So um, sort of on that point, I was wondering, can you share some of your experiences from your own schooling that demonstrated your teacher's perceptions of you and how inaccurate was and, and how hard that was for you to, to deal with in the classroom, especially as an adolescent male? Well, you know, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, but I grew up in Indianapolis and I went to Indianapolis public schools. So when we were in Indianapolis public schools, there were white kids, there were black kids, there were kids of other races, but you know, we all were just kids, just playing, getting along, and we didn't really talk about color or see it. We just played and had a good time. Then I get bused to fourth grade. I got bused to an all-white suburban school called Perry Township in Indianapolis, Indiana. So I'm only 10 years old, so I really don't understand racism and none of that stuff. I'm used to one of my best friends' name was Shane Wilson. He was a white guy, and we were really good friends in grade school. So they came to me one day and said, you and Shane are not going to be going to school together anymore. And, you know, as a, as a nine, 10 year old, you really didn't understand why, but they was doing the busing and the integration in the mid eighties. So in 1985-86, I got, you know, bused to this school. And um, I remember my first day, like yesterday, Robbie, I walk into the building, there's police cars and stuff all over the place. So I'm, I'm like, did they commit a crime or did something happen? But it was the integration of schools and they had police cars out there because
was from Mississippi, so she kind of she knew what was going on, but she was trying to shelter me from that. She didn't want me to experience that, but I was face to face with it when I was in fifth grade. Mm. And I know you know there's several stories in your book that really illuminate this. One that comes to mind is, um, and feel free to to chime in on this. You came to school and you were smelling like marijuana. And um, do you want to tell that story? And because I think it really highlights, um, you know, the need for us to trust our students. I believe. So why don't you go ahead and tell that story first? Now, I'm not going to. I'm on. not questioning who smokes and who don't. That's not <laughs> right. my problem. You know, whatever you smoke, whatever you don't smoke is not my problem. Hello, can you see me? Yeah, we can see. You. Yes, sir. Okay, my screen just went blank, so I can't see you anymore. But um, if you can see me, that's fine. Yep, I got you on this end. Okay. So the. Um, the particular story that you're talking about, Robbie, can you, can you guys see me? Yeah, we can see you. I'm not sure why maybe you're not able to see me, but everything seems to be fine on this end. Yeah. So you're talking about a story when, you know, I just showed up for school like any regular kid, and my teacher said I was smoking. And I said, I'm an athlete. I don't smoke, right? Mm -hmm. So she said, no, you smell like marijuana. You've been smoking. And she sent me to the office. So I told my principal, I said, I don't smoke, I'm an athlete. And they smelled the aroma in my clothes and I didn't live in a presidential suite at my house and my stepfather smoked. So because my stepfather smoked, it was in my clothes. So mm -hmm. the aroma was in my clothes. So anyway, make a long story short, you know, they ended up kicking me out of school. And on my second day of my suspension, I went to a store to get some candy. And when I got my candy, I walked out of the store. Some guys tried to rob me, and they shot at me. So I almost got shot on my second day of my suspension when I should have been in school. And this is the kind of rhetoric that young men of color go through on a daily basis, and that's not being televised, it's not being talked about. And, you know, I'm fighting against these stereotypes that continue to plague our young men of color. And that was just one example of how – I was discriminated against and I was told that I was a drug dealer when I never sold drugs and I ain't never uh, smoked marijuana, and, but I was accused of it anyway. And because they accused me, I was kicked out of school on the accusation, not mm -hmm. the actual act. And that's what I want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, I think, you know, that story in particular, and again, there's several others in the books, you know, that's all based on, you know, someone's perception of you right and because right. they perceived of the environment you're coming from they you know they didn't they didn't believe you they didn't ask any questions they didn't give you a chance to share your side of the story um and you know you talk a lot about in the book you know students can't control their home environments they can't control the neighborhoods they come from or perhaps the attitudes about education in their home or uh the attitudes about education among their peer groups and right. so you know, some of these students, they might require, you know, some, some additional effort, right? Um, it, because they're, they're sort of facing all of these um, almost negative perceptions on the home front about school. So I think it's important for educators to keep that in mind. And um, yeah, uh, sort of on a converse note, I know you speak a lot in your book about a teacher had named uh, Miss Sangster. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, one year you had a, a teacher who was, um, very much against you, it seemed like, and vocalized, you know, she told you, why are you even here? You're just going to wind up dead or in prison, like, like your friends. So why are you even coming to class? And then the next year you had uh, Miss Sangster who spoke into your life 
Um, can you speak a little bit about her and kind of how that helped change the trajectory that you, that you were on? Well, actually, Miss Sangster has spoken in my life long before I met this other mm. teacher. So Miss Sangster was my elementary teacher. So when I was in public schools, Miss Sangster was one of my teachers. And that's what I mean by the difference between the teachers I had in public school versus the teachers I had when I got bused to the suburban school. So Miss Sangster would always tell me how great I was. And, but you get in trouble, you know, we got paddled back then. She'd paddle you, then she'd sit you down and tell you how great you was, which was confusing for me because I was a kid. <laughs> you tell me how great I am, but you, you just paddled me. So I was still trying to decipher, but you know, I was, she never did it for just no reason. What she was doing, she showed tough love. And that's the difference between educators back then and some of the educators today. They showed tough, tough love, they cared about you. Miss Sangster would show up at my house if I was acting out. And not only would I get it from Miss Sangster, then I get it from my mom and then I get it from my next door neighbor. So the story you talk about in particular, my best friend was murdered when I was 16 years old. His name was Tony Binion. And Tony Binion was murdered when I was 16 years old. And um, to this day is one of the most devastating days of my life, you know, cause we were best friends. And, and, and the point I want to make is Tony wasn't a drug dealer. He wasn't a game banger. He was a good student. He made straight A's and B's. He was a, in fact, when he got killed, the newspaper read, shooting victim, good kid. That's all they said. It wasn't on the news. I mean, it was on the news. Got a young man get shot. And you know how everybody do when you do that. But Tony, ben, Tony was, you know, he was, he was a good kid. You know what I mean? So the news wanted to portray him like he's not a good kid. And, you know, and that really bothered me. But I went to the funeral. I come back to school, and my teacher tells me, why are you back in school? You're going to end up dead or in prison, too. I mean, that right there, for a 16-year-old who hasn't, I hadn't learned how to control my emotions yet. I didn't know what manhood was about, because I never knew my father. So it was a lot of different emotions I was dealing with as a kid that I didn't quite understand, right? I didn't understand how to control my own emotions. And then, on top of that, you couple that with a teacher who's just basically feeding me all this negative information, but I use it as fuel to get my education and to prove her wrong. And when I got my degree, I set it on her desk and I said, it was times I wanted to quit. But because you said the words that you said, I didn't do it just for me. And I want you to see this shirt. It says, no more excuses, right? And that's my model. That's what I live by, no more excuses. And you can get your copy on my website. But I wanted to make sure Tony understood that I'm not going to make excuses. I'm going to do it for you, and I'm going to do it for me and anybody else who've been told that they couldn't do it. Yeah, and in your book, you mentioned that, um, you know, the teacher you were talking about who, you know, sort of lit her perceptions of you were therefore manifesting themselves and limiting words about your future. And, you know, you say in the book that as a 16-year-old male, I didn't believe what she was saying but I had all these other things going on in my life. I didn't have a great situation at home. My, my neighborhood wasn't the greatest, um, so on, so on, and so on. So even though I didn't believe what she was saying, I heard it enough that I began to wonder if maybe that was true. And I think that, go ahead. No, just the power of words, you know what I mean? Words can wound you, words can build you up, but words can tear you down. And what you just explained, Robbie, was the power of words. And because I was hearing so much negativity, at the time, I started to question myself, and maybe she's, I know what she's saying is wrong, but maybe she's right. Maybe mm -hmm. I am doomed. 
you know, my best friend who ain't done nothing to nobody, he never heard a fly, he ends up murdered. Maybe I am next. And I went through a period of time where I was paranoid about being murdered and not making it to college. I mean, I stopped dating in high school. I said, I'm just going to date football in my books. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to have no girls. I'm not getting nobody pregnant, not doing any of that stuff. I got to get out of this situation. I got to get in college by any means necessary, and I got to finish. It's not about just getting in there. I got to get in there, and I have to finish. So that was my focus. And, I mean, I had tunnel vision. I was focused on going to college and doing what I need to do to be successful. And I think, you know, with all this – it's for the reason why I'm trying, you know, wanted to harp on this perception idea is like you're saying, the words matter. You know, these ideas are um, perhaps these biases that, that we might have when, you know, dealing with somebody who looks different than us. We might not realize we have them, but they manifest themselves in words and in expectations in, in school, like in discipline, in punishment, um, just in how you approach your students. And they're powerful. They can dictate the long-term outcome of that student's lives for better or for worse. Right. And so, you know, some folks might ask, well, why is this conversation important? It's important because your words matter. You're speaking over your, the, the children's lives in your schools. And, you know, just like you're saying, you know, it manifests themselves years down the road. Right. And, yes. it, 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 you know, it turns See, I stick. never forgot those words. Exactly. And I'll be 50 next year and I still, mm never forgot those words from Miss Sangster, and I never forgot those words from that teacher who said that. You always remember your favorite teacher, and you remember your worst teacher, and you remember the things that they said to you. You remember the words that came out of their mouths, and that's why it's important to have this conversation, because words have power. The tongue has power. So as educators, we have to activate our power correctly. And we have to make sure that we're speaking life into our children and not speaking death or suspensions or, um, you know, other bad things over our children and speak life and speak success over our kids and teach them to be competitors and stop feeling sorry for kids, but have empathy. Because when you feel sorry for kids, you lower your expectations. Mm -hmm. Kids don't need you to lower your expectations. They need you to raise your expectations and expect me to do well on top of that. Yeah, you say in the book that all students are success stories in the making and should be treated as such. I think that's just a beautiful way to frame it. Every kid, every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. Why can't that adult be you? For me, it was Dr. Dolores Sangster. Who is that a caring adult for you? You remember that one teacher, Robbie, that you had Mm -hmm. that spoke something into your life. Who was it? I know you remember the name. Mr. Panoff. You know what I mean? Everybody Mm -hmm. knows. And you remember that boring teacher, that teacher that was always negative. Who was it? No comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> said we on Facebook Live. But we all remember our favorite teacher and remember, we remember our worst teacher. You know why? Power of words. Mm. Tell me why you remember. You remember your favorite and your worst teacher because of the power of words. I promise you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So on that point, you know, we've discussed the power of words and perception sort of, um, you know, they're a key ingredient in, 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 you know, in the words that we speak to our students. Sure. How do you recommend a, a teacher kind of take stock of their own perceptions? You know, a lot of these, there's a lot of conversation nowadays about implicit bias or unconscious bias. And, you know, it can be hard to get to the bottom of some of those things, right? So 
if a, if a teacher is watching this and they're curious about, you know, taking stock of their own perceptions and maybe some beliefs that they didn't realize they held and, you know, it's, uh, you know, sort of hindering some of their students, and even inadvertently, how do you recommend a student or a teacher take stock of where they are kind of on this paradigm and what areas that they need to improve and what are some first steps uh, on this, on this uh, journey? Well, the biggest thing, according to Good and Brophy, educators form expectations for individual student learning based primarily upon their own perception. So we do things based on our perception. And sometimes your perception becomes your reality. Mental models are established by past events, media, messages we receive. They serve as filters to which we observe and interpret and respond to the world. They shape what we see, what we hear, and what we feel and what we do. Your mental models give birth to your stereotypes. So you need to start with yourself. You need to ask yourself questions. What do I see when I see these young men of color? Because if you're not careful, Robbie, you're only going to see what you expect to see, right? Because if I keep watching the news, I'm going to be scared of myself. Mm. Do I need to hide? Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So we have to understand that many times our perception becomes reality. And a lot of times, uh, Robbie, it's not about the microaggressions, which they do exist. You're different than them. Um, I got plenty of black friends, um, you know, you're different, you know, all of these different racial microaggressions. It's not about that. It's about the invisibilization. That's the act of seeing a situation, a person as invisible, not important without breath or death. So if you mistreat a dog, you go to prison, but if you kill an innocent uh, man of color, you might get a medal of honor for it. You know what I mean? So it's a difference there. And I really want educators to take a look. How are we culturally dealing with our children? Are we culturally aware? Do we understand the population of young people that we're working with? And if you don't, then you need training on that. Because what's happening is we have kids who are filling the school to prison pipeline. Last year, 1.2 million black and Hispanic males were suspended from K-12 schools. 1.2 million, that's a lot of young men. Where's the rehabilitation? Are they, are, they getting, are they getting any counseling? Are they getting mental health services? Because guess what, Robbie? 75% of those young men, maybe 80%, have experienced some kind of trauma. And they don't have any mental health services. So I think it's important to understand the six core values of working with these young men. But also, there are four steps to understanding kids. Acceptance, significance, security, and purpose. And we have to make sure that we're treating all of our kids fairly. And you know who you are. Now, you can lie to everybody, but you can't lie to yourself. And I think it starts with self saying, hey, you know, I need to make some changes. Um, I need to do this thing differently. I need to look at it differently. I need to read some materials. Well, here's a good resource. How do I become the educator they need? It's going to tell you how to deal with your biases. You know, you have to be careful because the number one step in dealing with your biases is word choice. Then you got to avoid stereotyping. Then you got to consider your intentions. And then last but not least, you got to focus on the impact. That's how you deal with your biases. And you cite a lot of research in the book that um, states, well, one, students know how you feel about them even before you start to talk, right? You, you kind of get into that. Yeah. But you cite research in the book that indicates how um, students' test scores are impacted by how they feel like their teacher perceives them, yeah. right? And so these manifest themselves, uh, you know, the conversation say it manifests itself, not just in, you know, the emotions of students, but in, you know, test scores, 
um, their ability to matriculate through the system, their ability to get into higher education, all that. So yeah, it's not just an emotional thing. Well, I feel this way or I feel this way. It's like that manifests itself in real world outcomes. Okay. Well, it's like, it's, it's called a stereotype threat, right? So the stereotypes that's put on our young people is being confirmed by educators who are lowering expectations, expecting kids that look like me to get lower test scores, expecting kids, listen, every man of color did not grow up without a father. In fact, if you look at the myth of fathers, most young men of color have a father. I mean, not over 90% have a father, but they're not necessarily married to the mother. So if they're not married and living in the same household, you know, when they're doing these reports, they look at that as an absent father. And just because I'm not living with my child don't mean I'm an absent father. You understand what I mean? So I wanted to dispel that myth. We have more young men of color who are in honors classes than special ed. See, some of these things you won't mm. know if you don't have the correct information. And if I keep watching the news, like the news media and all that kind of stuff, they, they, they portray these biases when it comes to guys that look like me, and it makes America scared. And you have educators who are scared. I'm in Las Vegas speaking seven, eight years ago. I'm in Las Vegas speaking, and I'm the keynote, Robbie. So I'm the keynote speaker, and I got a suit on. Man, I'm clean, Robbie. You know, I was, man, come on, yep. man. You know how I get, you see me in person. You know, I, I'm just joking. But I got clean, <laughs> man. So I'm walking down the aisle, and a lady clutched her purse. And the fact that she clutched her purse told me all I need to know. So you think the keynote speaker is going to snatch your purse out of your hand. Right. So her perception had become her reality. And she came up and apologized to me. And I said, don't apologize for who you really are. Let's just deal with those biases and why you feel the way you feel. So I think that everybody has biases. But when you ask them to talk about it, nobody wants to discuss it. Robbie, we're never going to get past racism, discrimination and cultural barriers until we have a conversation like me and you having right now and like the conversation that we had offline this morning. Mm -hmm. Those are the kind of conversations that we need to have in order to move us forward in this country to understand race and understand how we can get along with each other. Okay. That's how we do it. I know you're very um, passionate and I've heard you speak several times and you always mention the importance of um, conversations, people from different backgrounds speaking to one another and addressing these, um, uncomfortable topics, right? And um, so on that note, how do you recommend, you know, teachers kind of do that in the school situation? Do you have any, um, I don't know, conversation starters or topics to, to discuss? Or it, it can be in a, uh, very difficult topics to discuss, very emotional, um, very, it can bring up a lot of past traumas for a lot of people, you know, these topics. And um, on maybe the other side of the coin, it, it can be very accusatory, right? So. Yep. How do you recommend sort of beginning some of these conversations if, if we want to, but, you know, we're all kind of walking on pins and needles a little bit. How can we start these conversations? What are some tips that you have as far as that goes? Well, the number one tip I want to give you, Robbie, is that you got to step away from your safe space and step into a brave space. You got to step out of your safety zone and your safe place that you feel safe and walk into your brave space because we're never going to get to the bottom of this thing until we start having conversations. So if you're feeling uncomfortable talking about racism, it's a good thing mm. because it's not something that, you, that we can talk about comfortably. Now, when you're at home with your family 
or you with your significant other and you at home, you're comfortable talking about it then. But when you're talking about it in front of somebody, you're not comfortable. But that's how you get to know people. You get to know people by having conversations. So you start by having a conversation with somebody that doesn't look like you. And you can't talk and listen at the same time. You listen to them from their perspective. Then they listen to you from your perspective. There's two things that you have to understand as educators. And these two things are this, acceptance and respect. I said acceptance and respect. You may not agree with me, Robbie, but you should accept what I'm saying and respect it. I may not agree with you, but I need to accept it and respect it because that's your perspective. So when you're having these conversations about race and somebody's giving you the reality of what it feels like to be slammed on the ground and mistreated or discriminated against, and you're, you're, I can't fathom that. That's never happened to me. And that's okay. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to other people. Yeah, I talked about Khalif Browder in my book, and I would never let Khalif Browder's name uh, go down because Khalif Browder should still be here today. But four years ago, he committed suicide because he spent three years in Rikers Island for supposedly stealing a backpack. I need, excuse me, I need educators to understand that when you kicking kids out, where do they go? Where's the rehabilitation? So this young man was kicked out. He wasn't kicked out of school, but he was arrested for stealing a backpack that he never took. But he spent 900 days in solitary confinement in Rikers Island, one of the worst prisons in the United States. So you got people who murdered people who didn't get any time. You get accused of stealing a backpack, you sit in jail for three and a half years with over almost three years in solitary confinement for stealing a backpack. This system is broken. This, this systemic racism is real. And it's time for us to address it and do something about it. Mm. And you can't do that without having a conversation first. Because that young man should still be here today, but because of the racial injustices, his life was taken. And then Robbie, about a year after he passed, his mother died of a heart attack. So there's two lives lost. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to go to college and on a wrestling scholarship. And, but instead, he was, he was um, in jail, dealing with daily brutality. Uh, he got raped several times and assaulted and, 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 and worse on a daily basis. But, you know, his life would just swept away like the rest of these young black and Hispanic males. And I'm going to be a voice for him. I'm going to be a voice for you, Khalif Browder, Tamil Rice. Michael Brown, Sandra Bland, uh, we can keep going. Philando Castile, who was a school teacher, mm -hmm. I got to be the voice to speak up for them. And I think, you know, like you were saying, you know, some folks hear their stories and they can't fathom them, or they seem just seem so foreign. On the other side of the coin, other folks hear them and they can very much relate to them. And that's kind of like what we're talking about it is. here um, in the classroom and as a country at the moment as well. And you know, it's important for educators in particular to sort of be aware that it might seem foreign to you. It might seem hard to, hard to fathom for you. But for Black and Latino males in particular, it's not hard to fathom. And, you know, by not addressing that, um, those feelings, you know, this, a lot of the re research on, on trauma and, you know, just learning brain in general, you have to feel safe before you can learn. Right, you have to feel safe before you can begin to process your trauma. Sure. And by, uh, and you write a lot about this in your book. Um, uh, there's an excerpt here that says, "I felt like my life didn't matter. Um, like the people in power weren't on my side. That nobody understood what I was going through." And 
again, that's sort of why this is important. Yeah. If an educator allows their students to kind of express these things and um, just acknowledges this fact about, you know, the, the black and Latino males in particular in their classrooms and, and creates a safe space in the learning environment, then all of a sudden, you know, instruction can be improved, you know, some discipline incidents can be reduced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the first step is the safety and acknowledging that and giving the students a place to share. Is that right? That's right. I mean, in order to deal with kids with trauma, you just hit the nail on the head, Robbie. Kids are the most successful when they feel safe. How do you help kids feel safe? By giving them a routine. Miss mm-hmm. Sangster, I knew Miss Sangster's routine. She's going to walk in. Sometimes she's standing at the door. She's giving hugs as you come in. We're going to take attendance. We're going to sing a song. <laughs> and then we're going to jump right into instruction. We're going to take attendance. We're going to sing a song. We're going to jump into instruction. We're going to go to restroom at this time. We're going to lunch at this time. I mean, you just knew everything that went on, and it cut down on the trauma. Now, when you don't know what's going on and, and the educators scattered, don't have a plan, that raises the anxiety level of somebody who's dealing with trauma. And trauma is not always about violence. Mm-hmm. Trauma can be invisible. You know, like somebody being socioeconomically disadvantaged or somebody, um, parents being incarcerated or somebody not having uh, health insurance. That's invisible trauma. Somebody not having food at the house or maybe their lights being cut off. Invisible trauma is real, too. And just because a kid is not acting out or fighting or being um, defiant, they can you go to fight, flight, and freeze. If a kid just stand there all the time and just looking out in space, that's also trauma. So we have to understand that. And I just think we, can, we need to continue to educate ourselves as educators on what trauma feels and what it looks like, and not just for kids. There's a lot of educators who are dealing with trauma and mm-hmm. it, taking it out on kids. And you can't put out fire with fire. You can't put out hard skills with more hard skills. You put out hard skills with soft skills. Yeah, you, uh, the way you phrase it in your book is, um, well, just like you said, you don't fight fi- the fire of trauma with more fire. <laughs> uh, you know, punishment and, um, and negativity. Um, you said something a few minutes ago about how teachers need to learn. And I know... Um, you were a teacher for a while and you share some stories in your book that were fairly eye-opening for you. You kind of thought that you kind of don't, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, but you kind of, you felt like you knew how to relate to, to black youths and Latino youths and you wanted to do things differently than you had been treated in school. And then you came into the classroom and you were excited to like relate to these kids and so on and so on and so on. And, and it wasn't so easy. Is that right? <laughs> man, it was rough, man. My first, <laughs> my first couple of weeks of teaching was brutal. Because, listen, I'm used to dealing with disrespect. Listen, we were disrespectful at times, but when our parents and grandparents and other elders came around, we stopped cussing, we stopped talking loud, and we pretend like we were good kids. These kids today don't do that. When adults come around, they curse louder, and they're more disrespectful because they got younger parents who they've learned this disrespect from. So because of that, I wasn't prepared to walk into a situation where I thought because now I'm the teacher, they're going to just respect me. And I look like them, so I ain't going to have no problems. Man, that mm-hmm. ain't mean nothing. You know, you can walk in there just because two people look like, look similar to each other, don't mean they have anything in common. And I had my growing pains, and I had to learn how to live in my humility and stay out of my pride. See, I thought I knew who I was when I first started teaching, but I didn't. 
And if yeah. you don't know who you are and whose you are, then you open yourself up to be attacked. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So kids calling you names, it shouldn't bother you. You should understand that that's coming from trauma and coming from, they're coming from a bad situation. But if you don't know who you are and all of a sudden some young man called you the B word, you're going to be all in your feelings. Right. So, <laughs> so I learned as a young educator in the mid nineties that you have to have thick skin to do this job. And just because you look similar to someone don't mean that you don't, that you guys have anything in common. You still got to get to know your kids. Everybody has different experiences. That's why I'm so excited about this conference we're having on Friday because we have a thousand young people coming from all different Mm -hmm. walks of life. Everybody's coming together and we're going to learn to be culturally diverse and culturally aware of each other. And I want to ask you about that conference in a minute, but if I could just pick up on the point you were just making of, um, you know, you have to know yourself, you know, is dealing with, um, you have to do like some self-care before you get into these traumatic environments. Right. And I, I'm just thinking right now, you know, there's a lot of, we're all a little, a lot, a little stressed and a lot of stress. Right. And there's a lot of uncertainty around, um, school, around the economy, around jobs, um, around what is instruction going to look like. There's all this technology that we have to learn how to use. And all those are opportunities to just more and more and more and more stress. Right. Sure. And, um, you know, some of us, you know, maybe our spouses has lost their jobs. We have to arrange childcare for our own kids while we're at work. So there's a lot of trauma for everybody, right? Nationwide. I think that's safe to say. And we're about to enter into a season where educators either virtually or in person, they're going to be confronted with children all experiencing the same amount of trauma. And so the need for self-care to kind of check yourself to, um, to deal with all your own feelings before you enter the classroom is going to be even more so. So you can be less, re- you're, you're going to need to be like a Superman or Superwoman at self-care, you know, when school begins, I feel like. So I know you're really big into self-care. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and maybe some suggestions or some tips or some resources that you recommend teachers use to, to kind of deal with all this stress that we're all feeling right now before school um, resumes here in, in a few weeks? Yeah, that coronavirus is real. And I want people to understand that and continue to be safe. That's why we're doing virtual presentations because you still can get information out, but you have to look at it differently, right? I'm used to being in person. I'm used to being on planes five days a week. A couple things I want you to understand. I don't miss flying, okay, because I flew a lot, and I don't miss staying in hotels. I really love being home with my family. We can only control what we can control. My sister's had coronavirus twice. She had coronavirus. She works in the medical field. She caught the coronavirus. It took her down. She was real sick. She went back to work. Two weeks later, she got it again, right? So I want you to take this seriously. So as educators, we have to be able to move with the changes, right? So we have to make adjustments. We can't teach kids and make adjustments until we learn. So with that being Mm -hmm. said, taking care of yourself is a must. I'm on this uh, webinar. My daughter's been in here twice. (laughs) You know I'm on the webinar. (laughs) But you got to breathe because now you're at home and you're working and you got your kids running up and you're trying to work. Kids don't care. They don't understand. The only thing they're saying is daddy's home. It's mm-hmm. fair game. Where are you at? I need to get to him, right? And I said, daddy's on the webinar. I'm not trying to hear that. Um, we're, when we leave, you know, so we all have to make some adjustments. But here's a, just a couple few tips I want to give you parents. Um, number one, stop stressing out about everything, right? Control what you can control, right? 
So you stressing out, it's going to run your blood pressure up. It's going to cause you to have sickness and disease that you don't need because you're stressing out. Control what you can control. Also, you need to make sure that you exercise. Make sure you're eating right. Make sure you meditate daily. Pray and get some rest. I said exercise, eat right, meditate, pray, get rest. And I know somebody looking at this, meditating and prayer, and it's the same thing. No, it's not. Praying is talking to your spiritual father about some things, and you're having a conversation, and you're, you're praying on some things. You may pray in this virus away. Meditating is just going into a quiet place and just closing your eyes and just centering yourself and finding your center. And how often should you find your center, parents? Every day, because the number one stress for students is school and peer pressure. But guess what? School is at home now. So the mm -hmm. kids' number one pressure, number one stress factor is at home. Their number two stress factor, Robbie, is parents. So you got the top two stress factors, school and parents, and we're dealing with that every day because kids' schooling has been at home because of coronavirus, and parents are stressing out kids. The number three stress for kids is friends. So make sure that you're taking better care of yourself because when the, when the airplane takes off, the last thing they tell you, if the, if the air pressure drops, put the mask on yourself first. Why? Because when you put the mask on yourself, it gives you the strength you need to take care of everybody else. So when you put the mask on yourself, parents, educators, you have the strength to take care of your children, take care of your spouse, and take care of your students and staff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So just a couple more questions and uh, we'll let you uh, get out of here. And sure. I know there are a couple of folks watching on Facebook. Uh, Donna, I saw your uh, comment. Thank you so much for that. She's a great discussion. Um, if anybody watching, if you have any questions for Robert, send them in and we'll try to uh, squeeze those in for you. Um, so just a few things. You mentioned a conference that you're having on Friday and I know it's a free conference. You have some pretty big name speakers along with yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, we, it's, it's a pretty big deal. You know, Friday we have a No More Excuses conference, and we're excited about it um, because this is our seventh annual conference, and this conference is free, 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 <laughs> right? So all young men, 12 and up, whether you're 12 or, or 75, this conference is for you because we believe the iron sharpens iron. So we're encouraging you to register at robertjacksonmotivates.com. Some of the speakers is going to be uh, former NFL superstar Michael Vick. He's going to be on with us. We got Calvin Mackey, who's over the STEM program. Who else do we have? We have Mark Lamont Hill, who was formerly on CNN, who now has his own talk show. Who else do we have? Um, Ernesto Meja, who's going to speak to that Hispanic population. And we have Gary Brackett. Gary Brackett is a former Super Bowl champion with mm -hmm. the Colts. So we're giving away 10 scholarships. Robbie, we're not just talking about it. We're being about it. We're giving away 10 scholarships. We're giving away laptops. We're giving away bikes. But more importantly, we're giving away knowledge. We want to teach our young men to be strong men in society, strong future fathers, future husbands. Um, whether you're an entrepreneur or you work for somebody or, or you're teaching or whatever you're doing, we want to get you ready for that. We want to teach our young men how to, and our men how to control their emotions. Emotions or feelings on the inside caused by pain or pleasure that move you in a direction. Even during COVID-19, we have to learn how to control our emotions because when we're leading our households, we got to do it the right way. 
So we're excited about Friday, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. We're going to be on there for five hours, giving you knowledge, giveaways, and we're going to have a great time. And what was that uh, website address again if folks want to learn more? Yes, www.robertjacksonmotivates.com. Click on Conference 2020. Click on register or sponsor, however you want to do it, and make sure you get registered for the conference. We're already over 600 people registered. So once we get to 1,000, we're cutting it off. I did a couple radio shows this morning and last week. Registrations are going through the roof. But it would be a shame for parents not to have their sons take advantage mm -hmm. of this opportunity to get some free information, get some free prizes, some free scholarships. And we're giving away 10 $1,000 scholarships. And, Robbie, I'm doing this for my 501c3. It's called Stand Up, Speak in Truth, and Never Doubting Unlimited Potential. And we believe every young person has potential to be great. And we're going to find that greatness. We're going to keep pulling at you till we pull that greatness up out of you. Awesome. And uh, you mentioned Ernesto Meja. He is uh, also going to be presenting at the uh, upcoming Innovative Schools um, August Virtual Summit. My Mexican which is brother, man. Love that dude, man. That's my man. Awesome. Um, which, uh, again, that the Innovative Schools Virtual Summit is going to be August uh, 5th through the 8th. And uh, Robert here, he's going to be keynoting as well. Oh, as, am, I? Uh, am I speaking there? <laughs> you are. <laughs> and uh, you're also going to be doing a three-hour pre-conference session uh, titled Salvaging Our Sons. Can you share a little bit um, today about kind of what folks can attend um, or what folks can expect if they attend your pre-conference session or the, the keynote, again, at the Innovative Schools Summit this coming August uh, 5th through 8th? Well, I'm going to get on Ke Keely and, uh, and, and Phil. I'm going to get on them because uh, they work with me, right? So <laughs> they, they, they pull in everything they can pull out of me, three-hour sessions on virtual. Man, we're going to have our hands full. But the virtual session is called Salvaging Our Sons. And we're going to be talking about strategies for reaching young men. Uh, men think a little different than um, the ladies. And I'm going to be giving, because most of our educators are women, and most of them are uh, Caucasian women. So I'm going to give strategies on how can we reach the men in your building, the men in your, in your uh, classroom, and also the men at home. We're going to give you some strategies on what you need to do at home. <laughs> so we're excited about the three-hour session called Salvaging Our Sons. And the keynote is going to be how do we become the educators that our young men of color need. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about that in my keynote address. Uh, make sure if you haven't done so already, you need to get your butts out and register for this conference. It's going to be great. You're going to have some great speakers and some great information. So please take advantage of that opportunity. The keynote, becoming the educator they need, uh, workshop salvaging our sons. But like uh, Robbie just said, there's other great speakers like Ernesto uh, is going to be there and uh, Tracy McGee and, mm -hmm. and so many. I, I don't know if Kefele is doing this one yep, or not. Rudy will be there uh, as well. Rudy mm -hmm. Kefele. So you got some, you got some heavy hitters. So I'm going to try to get in where I fit in with all these mm -hmm. heavy hitters, but we're going to try to leave you with some tangible information that you can use right away, especially during COVID-19. And I, I will be addressing how can we become the educators they need during COVID-19. So there's no excuse. COVID-19, we're still going to be being the best educators that we can be. We're going to control what we can control. We're going to continue to stay safe. And uh, we're going to continue to feed our kids good information, hugging them from a distance. But just like right now, I feel like me and Robbie in the living room together, even though he's in, where you in, Virginia? Yes, sir. Yep. You're in Virginia, I'm in Atlanta. But I feel like we right in the living room together. We can, we can get together and make this happen. We just have to make sure that we're thinking out the box 
about ways that we can reach and teach our young people. Awesome. And again, if anybody wants more information on that virtual summit, the uh, web address is innovativeschoolssummit.com. And I just click on the virtual tab and you can find information on that. Uh, Mr. Jackson, thank you so much for your time today. I, uh, I wanted to get you on here and um, this is the first live broadcast we've done. So I appreciate you. Uh, we had a little technical difficulties there in the beginning, but I appreciate oh, your patience here, with man. that. And I uh, just wanted to give um, you know our followers uh, just a little taste of sort of what you speak about, you, what you share about, your passion and your insights. And um, we look forward to hosting your sessions again at that Innovative Schools Summit um, in August uh, 5th through the 8th. So thank you so Please much for your time more today. information. If audience want more information, robertjacksonmotivates.com. All my information's on there. Uh, Robbie, doing a great job. Thank you for having me today. I said, man, it's over already. I was, <laughs> it was quick. Yeah, it was quick. Uh, I'll give you one last opportunity. Um, anything else you'd like to share um, with our listeners, um, educators, as we're preparing to go back to school here in a few weeks? Uh, the, la the only thing I want to share with you is that kids don't always remember what you taught them, but they always remember how you made them feel. A person giving you advice has their own set of shortcomings. Everybody who's giving advice to somebody has pieces missing. But that doesn't mean that you can't give that, that piece to that educator or the student, that piece that they're missing. So please continue to work on yourself while you work to educate, activate, and motivate all students to be great. And remember, no more excuses. Time for everybody to stand up and educate, activate, and motivate all kids to be successes. All right, thank you so much. Uh, congratulations on your award, and uh, we look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Sounds good, thank you, Robbie. Have a good time. Thank you, you as yeah. well. All right.